All right. I am here with my buddy Todd Seavey, longtime friend, libertarian advocate, um, very, very prolific and vocal, outspoken spokesperson for, for freedom. Um, Todd is the author of Libertarianism for Beginners, which I will link to in the show notes. Um, and you can find him on Twitter at uh, Todd Seavey. Welcome to the show again. Thanks. So the last time you were here, we talked about immigration and borders. And now you've written this piece, which I think really you're just trying to piss off everybody. Um, because essentially you're, 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 you're taking the position that we should have both open borders and secession. So this, this piece is not intended to make any friends. Um, what are you actually saying in this? So you're, the, the title of your piece is Secession and Open Borders, Why Not Both? Uh, well, I guess the common theme there, especially for libertarians, should be you want people to be as free as possible to uh, move around and go where they choose so long as they're not trespassing on other people's private property, right? Or at least I always thought that was the goal. Uh, I'm sure by now there are some uh, very paleo-influenced uh, nominal libertarians uh, who no longer think strict property rights adherence uh, is the main goal. Uh, but if it is, it shouldn't be surprising to say, ah, I would love a world where there aren't huge uh, monolithic nation states like the Soviet Union or China. Um, or California. Uh, or California. Um, and not so long ago, this wouldn't have been at all a surprising uh, or uh, radical position. I think it's quite possible that most libertarians in, say, the 1980s would have said that they both wanted uh, open borders and ease of secession, which was the the new wrinkle I was adding in the most recent column, uh, wouldn't have really surprised anybody. But then, starting roughly in the nineties, um, we started we started moving in the direction of immigration, perhaps being the most decisive uh, uh, deciding left versus right issue in American politics. For a while, I was hoping it wouldn't become that, but I, th I think we've arrived uh, unless policy uh, preferences change post-COVID or something. Um, but at least over the past few years, it seems like uh, immigration has become such a defining wedge issue that you could disagree with the right on almost everything else and still be considered a right winger in good standing if you're anti-immigration. Uh, and and if you sounded the right sort of cosmopolitan pro-immigration notes on the left, you could probably disagree with them on almost everything else and still be accepted in their ranks. Although, of course, they'd try to get you fired or canceled eventually for something. Um, but uh, yeah, for a while, for a while I, I, maybe I was naive, but I, I thought uh, immigration, uh, not that it didn't have a great policy importance, but as an ideological issue, a philosophical issue, I thought it could be backburnered a bit, perhaps, uh, that it didn't have the same immediacy as uh, the issues that people think of as already inside the house domestic policy issues, such as econ, taxes, that sort of thing, regulation. Uh, and it also uh, seemed somewhat separable from the faster, scarier, more urgent foreign policy issues like war. Um, so I thought, you know, immigration is something that happens in a glacial fashion. We can worry about this decades hence. Uh, mm -hmm. And now it seems to be the big uh, divisive thing. What do you think happened? Why did it, what did it become? I think, I mean, it was just uh, historical happenstance, really. Uh, it was just timing in the nineties. You had, um, 
the post-Soviet world, seeing more uh, immigration uh, from Europe, and uh, and there was a, a growing influx of people migrating north from Latin America. Uh, so it was really just, uh, I, I think it was just historical timing, um, and most people not being ideologues to begin with. So mm. if suddenly they're concerned in a practical way that uh, they don't recognize their neighbors down the block, that probably uh, matters far more to most people than their uh, philosophical commitments to strict rights of any kind, whether property or otherwise. But for our immediate purposes, since uh, we know libertarians, um, I think the, the weird thing is when libertarians have uh, commitments that seem to override property rights. I guess that's mm -hmm. one of my big concerns. I, I, uh, I, you said that I sound like I'm not trying to make uh, any friends. And uh, I, I suppose that in a sense, that's true. Actually, in an era of uh, constant Twitter fighting, I should note that, um, uh, you know, most people when they think about politics are at least thinking about signaling their allegiance to one tribe or another or, or another. And uh, uh, I was uh, uninterested in that approach before everybody started fighting with each other. Um, but I don't know if I timed it in such a way as to get much credit or benefit from it. But I mean, figure way back, uh, say immediately post-Soviet Union, I was already inclined to think there's not too much point in constantly uh, reminding people uh, that you agree with them because you're sort of preaching to the choir and they don't learn that way. And I had been a philosophy student when I was in college. Uh, so I always thought, you know, uh, if you already know everybody in the room believes in say uh, individualism or property rights or whatever it might be, uh, it's more productive to talk about the things where you disagree. And I suppose when I was a young adult, I imagined uh, it's okay to do this because uh, you'll build up loyalty amongst the people who respect your intellectual honesty. That was obviously totally false that was that was a complete pipe dream it doesn't work that way at all um the uh the, several things have changed since then actually i guess you and i now met about half our lifetimes ago which is terrifying thank you for uh, reminding me yeah that's <laughs> what i don't know if i should tell people exactly what the math is but when no, no, hong kong go is going back to china oh sorry yeah um and boy, that second half went really quickly, didn't it? It, but, it just uh, speeds up. And you know what? My yeah. my grandmother, who died just before she turned 103, said in her in her last years, because we asked her about this, she said, oh, it just keeps speeding up. So hmm. don't expect that to slow down anytime soon. That's it's just going to keep rolling. And yeah. Speaking of centenarians, I, I noticed in the news today, a 102-year-old uh, man in Encino, California, on your coast, wow. uh, was uh, killed randomly by an axe murderer. Uh, oh no! Yeah, can you imagine making it through over a century? Oh my god! And then you're randomly killed by an axe murderer. That, oh my god! That kind of blows. Then again, you know, it's possible. He always thought to himself, "I'd rather go out with a bang than you know slowly waste away." So maybe it could be worse. I mean, here, but, here uh, I was being surprised that anyone could live that long in California. But oh, that's that's <laughs> just. And actually, I don't. I don't for that. Come to think of it, I don't know his whole history, but he he may well have been an immigrant. I, I but uh, that doesn't make it a good segue. I'm sorry. No, there's um, yeah, I don't think there's a segue there. Oh, uh, so sure. uh, but anyway. Oh, so anyway, I, I guess uh, amidst these sort of uh, changing political coalitions, it would be nice 
if people were philosophical enough to still go back and admit what their core unshakable commitments are. Mm -hmm. And I think in the Twitter era, that is getting less and less likely. Uh, I think there there are a lot of full-fledged grown-up adults now. I mean, they're younger than you and I are, but but adults uh, participating daily in political discourse uh, who, if you asked them their fundamental uh, political principles, would evasively make a joke, a wisecrack, call you a jerk, and switch to a different topic, um, which makes it really hard to deal with nuanced uh, political issues. Um, but I, I, you know, I suspect uh, immigration, for instance, has probably become that sort of issue even amongst some libertarians. So, for example, I, I noticed uh, some people sort of in the Mises orbit, and I don't mean to beat up on the Mises Institute too much because sometimes I, I like them more than uh, than uh, some of the uh, you know, Reason Cato crowd. I, and I, you I, should because they've been consistently, with the possible exception of, of this one issue, for some of the people there, I'm not going to name names. Um, I think they've been much more consistently pro-liberty than a lot of other organizations. Yeah, but I, anyway. I, no, I think that is true on many issues. Um, but I couldn't help noticing that on, on some uh, online thread with a bunch of sort of, it, it wasn't Mises staffers so much as uh, Mises fans and uh, uh, colleagues. They were, uh, uh, I think they were talking about the idea, oh, as we were, I think the last time I talked to you, of uh, what if states, individual U.S. states, suddenly had hardened borders, uh, which was right, a half right. half joking suggestion of Ryan McMacken there, yeah. and uh, and and I and I, I understand his somewhat nuanced argument that basically small states tend to be freer, uh, so you know why not allow them the hardened borders that enable them to be autonomous and and distance themselves from the big centralized state. That, that's different than just saying borders are always good uh, and movement is always bad. Um, however, I couldn't help but think in the discussion thread. Uh, there were actually people saying in the default knee-jerk sarcastic way that half the people on Twitter now always do. Uh, they were sort of saying like, you know, oh, horrors, what would we do if suddenly people from out of state couldn't visit us here in Alabama? Like they, they just thought that was that was a joke. <laughs> That's I think you'd be in a pretty you'd be in a bad state, so to speak, if no one could yeah. visit you in Alabama. But it's like yeah. the the sarcasm and the knee-jerk dismissal of immigration concerns just yeah. overrode their usual purported belief that people should be able to move about freely and travel. Uh, so I guess uh, in a lot in a lot of uh, political debates, I, I think uh, there is something to be said for idealism in the sense of asking people, what do you really want to happen long term? You could make a coherent argument that you just don't want, you know, you don't want foreigners in your land or something like that. But admit, please. Right, come out and admit, say it. Come if that's your underlying allegiance. Uh, yeah. Well, I will say that I think, I do think there's an argument to be made. I, I understand where some of the frustration comes from because there there's sort of the cultural argument that the state, and I think there's a, there's sort of a melding of the state and immigrants, which I don't accept, but I can see where it comes from, has taken over a lot of social institutions. You know, the welfare state has replaced what used to be voluntary, you know, cooperation and um, things that were done through through churches and, and society generally. So I, I get that there is an argument to say, hey, the state has has sort of destroyed a lot of our culture. We want to reclaim our culture. 
and then to identify, well, our culture is, you know, identify it with whatever ethnicity you, you belong to. Um, I think that's a mistake. I think it's a mistake to, to think that, you know, my, my, the cultural values that I want to, to inculcate or that I want to have around me are limited to, well, let me give you an example. So, because I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for this view that, you know, we've lost any, any semblance of a culture that respects individual freedom, property rights, all that stuff. But when I go, just the other night, I went down to Tinhorn Flats. I don't know if you've been following this story. Um, so there's a restaurant here in Burbank that has been defying the orders of the city to shut down. And, and now it's not shut down anymore, but it's like you were supposed to shut down. And so we're going to punish you because you didn't. Um, they've been staying open. The city shut down, shut off their electricity. So somebody donated a generator. So they had a generator up and running and it's been packed. Went down there the other night. We all signed affidavits against the city and it was great. Very mixed crowd, very mixed as far as white, Hispanic, Armenian, um, African-American, big mix of different cultures, but people who all, for whatever reason, share the values of individual liberty. And I guess sort of the point I'm trying to make is, especially in America today, I don't see that the, the cultural value, values that I consider to be important, I don't see them being drawn again on ethnic lines. And I'm not sure if that's at all relevant to where you were going. But oh, yeah. No, I think it is. Uh, it, and it's also a reminder that uh, given how complex and multivariable culture is, uh, you're not likely to end up with a libertarian system if you start trying to nationalize every component of culture uh, that's important to uh, sustaining the society you know. So, I mean, you know, today people might say, oh, I want to nationalize the border so that we can decide who gets in because demographics are important. But, uh, you know, libraries are important. Do, do the same people insist that those Ooh, have it's to be important? Public? Yeah, food. Uh, so that should that be nationalized? Um, and actually, the, the sort of protectionist anti-immigration mindset, I, I hope this isn't redundant with something I mentioned in the, the last. It might be. Have, that's fine. <laughs> I may have said this almost verbatim, but uh, there's a a fairly prominent uh, conservative uh, pundit who I noticed on, on Twitter was uh, sarcastically mocking the importation of avocados, you might vaguely recall that becoming a, a little micro issue for a few days. It was just sort of being used mm -hmm. as an example of something that uh, under Trump tariffs might have been uh, stopped uh, at the border at one point. And the response uh, from at least some conservatives of the protectionist or pro-border sort uh, was basically like, ah, who needs you know, avocados from Latin America, you know, what do they know about avocados? We'll grow American avocados. And I mean, you could, you could say that about the consequences of, of almost any regulation, but that doesn't seem like a very libertarian attitude. Like, Oh, quit your whining. It's just one more, you know, tax or regulation. And the pundit that I was thinking of who was tweeting about that even said, uh, at one point, if, uh, if we have trouble finding domestic farm labor, when we've stopped the immigrants from coming in from Latin America, uh, we'll just pass a law uh, mandating that farm laborers, domestic farm laborers, have to be paid an American wage that's high enough to incent them to work. I mean, so there goes like <laughs> minimum wage and supply and demand thinking right out the window right. just because you want to screw the Latin Americans. Right. Uh, so it, 
it, it really, you give the statists an inch and uh, they'll really take a, mar a mile in unraveling uh, libertarian thinking. So it's better, better not to tempt them. You know, yeah. don't, don't, don't <laughs> cheer for the welfare bureaucracy. Don't cheer for the border patrol. Don't cheer for the CIA, whatever it is. I mean, they're always going to take that uh, statist idea and run with it, I'm afraid. Oh yeah, yeah. Can I just say one one? I, I don't think I can get the camera around here, but I. What's hilarious about the the thing about the avocados is that, in my experience, trying to buy good avocados, it is impossible to grow decent avocados north of that border. Um, I have an avocado tree sitting right out here. In fact, ah. um, it has yet to produce a single avocado, so it's probably not a good example, but. Again, in my experience, maybe somebody knows better. I have not been able to find avocados grown on this side of the border that are even edible. So that's kind of, it's a hilarious example to, to even, to think that, oh, well, just this one thing we don't need to import. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. If you care about guacamole, you absolutely do need to import those avocados. I come to think of it, if I were an insane, overly optimistic right anarchist, this would be the point when I would say, no, don't you see? Your tree is proof that you can become an autonomous, uh, house-sized collective with your own ecosystem and your own society, and you have no need of foreign land. So you just start building that wall. And then, right. and then you, you know, first Around you grow your own yard. avocados, then you start building your own batteries. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Uh, yeah, because insane. autarky is what free markets are all about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. At no, least, it's, it, it's uh, nuts. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, at least many of the people who take that sort of position, um, uh, pretty hardcore uh, anarchists uh, who want everything completely decentralized uh, uh, or call themselves uh, anti-civilization, at least some of them are consistent enough to recognize they're going to end up living like animals in the woods. But that is not what I wish upon humanity. And I count myself among the radical decentralizers. I, I mm -hmm. think we should decentralize down to a unit of one. Um, but that does, I, th I think there's a misconception there. I think that a lot of people take that idea and they think, and because they went to government schools, I mean, let's be honest about it. Um, the idea that respecting individual rights and sovereignty equates to being isolated from all of humanity. And right. I think that's one of the most pernicious ideas out there. And it's really, it just seems to be ingrained into people's DNA or something, but it gets to the idea of secession, which is the other piece of what you're talking about. What do you, what, when you talk about secession and open borders, what are you envisioning? Uh, I, I suppose one way to think of it is, um, uh, taking things that are currently big heated sources of conflict and uh, defusing them uh, by lowering the stakes. So uh, right now, in part because of the legacy of the U.S. Civil War, it would be seen as sort of a, a huge and traumatic thing if California ever made good on its occasional wish to secede from the rest of the union. I mean, I think it's really seen by most Americans as akin to losing an arm or something like that. Uh, but uh, secession gets talked about in a more low-key way uh, on other scales. Occasionally, you know, you'll hear about like part of Boston wanting to secede from Boston, and most people uh, don't, you know, think they'd tear their hair out or start killing their neighbors if, if that happened. Uh, and every once in a while, people, in, and I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime, but every once in a while in New York City, uh, you'll hear people say uh, maybe 
fusing the five boroughs that make up New York City was a mistake or has become outdated because each of those boroughs is now so large and populous. Maybe they should uh, drift apart or, or, you know, some people would say maybe just Staten Island should go its own way. That's actually an amusing example where both uh, the right wingers on Staten Island and the left wingers in the other four boroughs would probably approve that plan. Like, sure. Yeah. Let Staten Island go its own way. We, we, you know, we don't want them. Um, so, uh, there are low key ways of doing secession that don't involve uh, Ken Burns documentary and 100,000 people being slaughtered uh, or 600,000. Um, and, uh, and, and peaceful secession should uh, please uh, people who respect autonomy and self-determination on uh, both sides of the uh, left-right divide, I think. Uh, and it, it's much easier to talk about secession when it's not in the context of uh, other heated right left uh debates so for instance if you've got some conservatives in uh the pacific northwest or northern california who would like to secede but they're talking about forming a new state called cascadia that includes part of canada uh you know including canada sort of helps establish their uh their like non-right-wing cred because canada is in many ways more left-wing than than the u.s uh so I, I was I was encouraging people to think uh, outside of the current usual combat fault lines uh, and see that uh, if what you really want is people being able to uh, live as close as possible to the uh, political patterns or the political center of gravity that they like, uh, maybe you should be more relaxed about letting them drift away. Um, and of course, in the, in the current U.S. context, uh, although I, I don't think this is likely to happen. It would sure be sweet if we could just abolish Washington, D.C. and let the 50 states go their separate way. Uh, that mm -hmm. sounds I, obviously everyone in Washington, D.C. is going to object to that plan. But boy, that would solve a lot of problems, wouldn't it? Really it? Would. it really what would. What if we well, could just and... leave Washington, D.C. with the $28 trillion in debt? And everybody yeah. else go about their business. Um, I realize yeah. that would be kind of a ridiculous algebra. Well, no, I mean, you, you, you I mean, how, how much more ridiculous is that than the the skyrocketing levels of debt that we're all getting saddled with? I mean, I don't think your proposal is, is any more absurd. And, you know, you, the way you say it, you, you make it sound like it is absurd. But I feel like people are kind of at the end of their rope in a lot of ways. And after this last year, especially solutions like this don't, don't sound, don't have the same, you know, sounds to a lot of people as they may have even a year ago or definitely, you know, certainly five or 10 years ago. Um, I, I don't know. Are you, do you feel like there's more openness and willingness to hear about the idea of secession? Uh, yes. And, and, uh, you can you can sort of uh, track the number of uh, secession movements uh, uh, online, and there was a for a while there it looked as if uh, all the pro secession people were sort of uh, angry Southern neo Confederates. Uh, not all of them terrible people necessarily, but but that seemed to be the center of gravity. But uh, I think people are becoming conscious of the fact that well, as with Cascadia and ideas like that in California, in the state of and, Jefferson and New California, yeah. there's a bunch of stuff going on here and it is all it's also interesting that uh local regional alliances like that uh are yet another thing 
that can push left versus right uh, divisions to the side. We, you know, we think of the left versus right divide as so deep and so basic. And then the moment you ask people, hey, do you wish Connecticut was separate from the rest of the country, you realize that uh, they actually don't care so much about whether their neighbors are Democrats or Republicans. They're perfectly happy to say, yeah, let's be our own country. Um, which, which is a good thing in a way, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. and uh, maybe you could defuse, well, many people pointed out that like the larger the collective you try to get to agree on one thing, the more they're going to fight uh, right. because everything becomes this huge all or nothing battle. Uh, right. So if you try to yoke together 300 million people, they're going to end up finding some fault line like left versus right to fight over. If, uh, if it's just you and your fellow Staten Island inhabitants, uh, maybe uh, you can focus on less apocalyptic things like uh, whether to repair the ferry and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I feel like that view, which is something that, you know, people like you and me have talked about for, for ages, is is starting to sort of make some headway that people are realizing, yeah, this is, it's a little bit crazy that this whole country, this whole, you know, what is it, 350 million now, um, is being run by this tiny little, you know, place back East. And, you know, now let's see, they're, they're, yeah, a lot of this was done by governors, but the fact that that DC has so much influence over that federal policy has so much influence over the states, the counties, the cities. Um, I don't know. To me, it just seems obvious that 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 level of of distance and a tiny, tiny number of people really controlling the lives of millions and millions of people is untenable. That even if I believed in, you know in a statist solution, even if I believe that it was okay for a group of people to rule over other people, certainly there's a point where it gets too big. And I feel like that's just a a kind of common sense observation. Um, I I wanted to ask you specifically about the image that you used in this article, and I'm trying to make sense of it. I'm going to try and post it here. It's what it looks to me. It looks to me like this is a map of Europe but with lines showing where over the years, over the centuries, where borders have been. And you've got all these weird lines that nobody would recognize. 1886, 1910, 1925, 1899, 1847, 1913, all these different borders. And this is just going back. It looks like this is just going back to the 19th century. I mean, you know, take it back another couple hundred years and it, it, you know, becomes completely unrecognizable and just a hash of, of borders. Why, when you look at the historical context of where lines were drawn and who had power over what region, when you look at that historically, and there are, there are animated maps that you can look at that show, you know, the changes over the centuries. Why, when it's been so fluid for millennia, are we so attached to how it is now? Uh, it's a good question. And it's a reminder to me that uh, much as I like certain elements of uh, conservatism, uh, some of the impulses that conservatism sells as eternal and rooted in our very nature uh, are actually fleeting and or, or, or the impulses may not be fleeting, but they can be attached to things that are actually not very old. Um, so, you know, they 
you could probably convince most, especially young uh, conservatives, that like the nation state is a fundamental part of human nature. And if they haven't read too much history, you could probably convince them it has always been that way. And then yeah. if you show them that like really what we think of as a nation state was, you know, they were invented sometime around the late 19th century, really. And, uh, and we're still considered a novelty when modern day Germany and Italy were forming. Uh, I think they'd be confused. And then they would respond by getting angry and insulting you on Twitter. So I'm not sure much progress would be made, uh, but it could still be a, a useful exercise. And, uh, and it's not just conservatism that makes the mistake of thinking that novel things are actually ancient. Uh, of course, the, the left does that as much uh, if not more, uh, with one of my favorite examples being uh, for a while there, uh, since Democrats were really upset about potential budget cuts to the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, they would talk about the NEA as if without it, there would be no art, even though the NEA was only created around the time you and I were born. Sorry, I'm uh, dating us again, but, <laughs> but uh, as I'm pretty sure there was art before you know, the 1960s. 1965, uh, you can go ahead and say it. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, your, your your deepest aesthetic allegiances shouldn't be to this relatively newfangled bureaucracy. Or the or, income tax, or the income tax. Yeah. You know, anytime somebody, somebody you know, threatens any anything like, you know, anytime I go on about how, well, obviously we should abolish the in income tax, you know, people go up in arms about, oh my God, how will we educate our children? How will we have roads? How do we... None of that existed before 1913. I mean, it's it, it is this 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 not the sense. Uh, I was going to say a sense of history, but it's actually a sense of no history, a, yeah. a complete lack of awareness of history. Or, or, or one more example uh, is that I, I don't think uh, most uh, left leaning people in the U.S. know how recently the Department of Education was created. They probably think that that was there from the dawn of the Republic and it, without it, everyone would be uh, illiterate. When was um, it created, by the way? Hmm? When was it created? Uh, let's see. Uh, I believe 1980 was when it was uh, wow. actually signed into law. Wow. Uh, it might be off by a year or two, but I, wow. I And was... getting getting back to, to borders and immigration, um, passports didn't exist until World War One, right? Right. Just, or just after World War One. Yeah. Uh, and and now we've got uh, conservatives who probably think that they've uh, existed since the uh, the Bronze Age uh, when things were more noble and heroic, and uh, uh, and we don't want these modern newfangled socialists getting rid of our passports, right? Right. Um, right. So yeah, people, uh, people's uh, sense of history is is really askew. Um, on the bright side, I will say. If people uh, are amnesiac and have no sense of history, uh, it may at least make it easier to predict uh, how to sell them on radical ideas, which at least at this juncture in history seems time and again to be uh, to make things sound techno hip. Um, of course, I, you know I don't know if I don't know if, I don't know if the Trumpers quite fit into that pattern, but generally speaking, it does seem like in the last couple of decades, if you can make something sound like it's it's casual, it's easy to do. It's a downloadable app and so on and so forth. You might be able to sell people on the idea. So if you can convince them that secession and porous borders are just another element of choice, uh, you might be okay. However, I, as we're sort of discussing throughout here, uh, it is interesting how many people we know who love Quicksilver Capital and blockchain and Bitcoin and hardened borders. I just, I think they should at least be, I mean, they might have their yeah. roundabout Hapa-inspired arguments or whatever, but they should at least be suspicious 
of whether those things are at odds or there's some sort of uh, tension there. Yeah. Well, and it also gets to the, it gets to the culture question again, too, because our culture really isn't, yes, there's a geographic component to it. Certainly we, you know, we live in a physical world and we have people physically around us, but so much of our interaction in the world, real interaction, economic, social, whatever, doesn't take place in that physical realm. It's, it's, you know, you mentioned blockchain and, and that's not, you know, you don't, there's no kind of geographic segregation there. You don't, it's not the, the whole realm in which we're living has shifted. So this idea that you can preserve your culture by preserving geographic boundaries, I think isn't going to, isn't going to buy much. Uh, and, and some of the most important things about culture, like books, we obviously think of as traveling all around the world and uh, don't think they have to be rooted to one spot. So the uh, the mania for geography and wall building um, is is sort of a, a weird recent historical hiccup. And I guess I just I just I, I keep harping on the uh, difference between the young and the old. Uh, I hope that's not depressing, but. Um, but it's scary to see how quickly like the rising generations forget the things that were learned sometimes at great cost by the immediately preceding generations. Yeah. So I'm not sure they were learned by the preceding generation, <laughs> by the way. No, that, that's true. Um, so, I mean, already, well, uh, to one example that springs to mind, I was talking to a guy who is, uh, basically a racist. I think that, I think that's fair to say. Um, okay. but he, he's, he, uh, thinks of himself as kind of a paleo-conservative right-leaning type. And uh, I, I noticed him in a thread online talking about uh, uh, immigration and demographics as the most important thing in the world. Uh, not just uh, he was arguing for its own sake, but at least somebody in the thread was arguing um, for determining uh, good or bad economic, economic outcomes. And uh, so I tried to weigh in with what just a short time ago, a couple of decades ago, would have been an obvious counter argument, which was what about all the places in the world where you've got almost genetic, genetically identical people, but because of some divide in where the economic policies fell, uh, showed an incredibly uh, differential outcome uh, in, in economics. So East Germany versus West Germany, that's not genetics, that's communism versus non-communism, mm -hmm. uh, North Korea, South Korea, uh, and so in mainland China, Hong Kong, uh, you know, these aren't differences that were caused by genetics. And uh, and really nobody bothered to even respond. I just seemed like the econ point was not of interest to them because uh, that uh, group anyway had moved on to thinking of demographics and genetics as so determinative that they weren't even interested in talking about economics anymore. That's scary, um, yeah. especially yeah. since I, I still think the shortest route to getting everybody to think like a libertarian is still to teach them basic econ. Uh, and it always scares me when even some of my fellow libertarians start saying, what? Nobody, nobody wants to hear about econ. In fact, I, I don't know what your other route is <laughs> to getting them to apply yeah. libertarianism. Well, I think the, the other route is kind of what we were getting at earlier. And that is the, the flip side of people being willing to accept all kinds of authoritarianism as normal, passports as normal, these, the borders we haven't happen to have right now as normal, is that if by some means we were able to bring about what you're talking about here, radical secession, radical decentralization, if it just happened, those same people who thought that 
our whole lives being locked down for a year was normal, we'll think that's normal too. Uh, yeah. Uh, and the, the question uh, is, how uh, do we get there? Uh, it, I, I guess uh, if I were really ambitious, I would be, even as we speak, uh, organizing an immense campaign of uh, libertarian propaganda to occur right in the next six months uh, because uh, I'm not quite sure what to do about it, but you can see that there might be a turning point in people's thinking uh, mm -hmm. right now as yeah. they perhaps emerge from COVID lockdowns. Uh, it might be an opportunity, almost like the end of the Cold War, mm -hmm. to sort of say to everyone, hey, isn't it nice to be able to move about freely again? Isn't it nice to be able to trade? Uh, do you really want anyone, be it a regulator or a health uh, official or, or a border patrol, to tell you where you can go and what you can do at this point? Or would you rather just leave all that behind? Um, uh, and maybe something like a sloppy version of that moment will happen, but you could just as easily see people becoming inured to all of the tracking and surveillance that they've uh, come to put up with. And just the scariest thing is if the public is tired of surveillance and regulation post COVID, but uh, officials don't care because they're in love with all the new powers they've gained, uh, especially surveillance and tracking powers, which they can impose very subtly. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they don't have to be noisy about it. And it has to be said uh, I, that uh, the surveillance regime is almost enough to make you lose your faith in capitalism sometimes because it is very obvious that uh, big companies are happy to sign on to these programs yeah. as long as yeah. they're the ones building the gadgets and doing the tracking, um, it, it, which is also uh, kind of the dark side of the techno-optimism because some of the same people who talk right. like techno-optimists are happy to be the border enforcers. They'll, you know, uh, Lenin quite rightly said the capitalists will sell us the rope with which we hang them. And now you could just as easily say the capitalists will happily build the drones uh, that track the people trying to flee the government. Um, I, I can't help but think of Peter Thiel. I'm sure he is he is probably friends with some people I know. Um, and he has his libertarian side, but you know, he's he's also one of the biggest surveillance moguls on the planet. And these people never seem to shy away from working with the government for long. Yeah, you know? well, and that's just, I, th I think that's a part of, and you say capitalism, you know, we clearly live in a crony capitalist state where the people who, the, the entities that have risen to the top have done so because they've cozied up to government, which then regulates out of existence their competition to some extent. Um, and we're seeing that in spades with the with the lockdowns and restrictions. I mean, small businesses have just been shafted and Amazon and, and the other, you know, buddies of the state have been profiting tremendously. But it is, I think it is true that, you know, capitalists, um, are not don't really have a history of being friendly to free markets and you know my dad wrote about this and they'll kind of they'll a, a good capitalist a good a good entrepreneur a good business person will adapt to whatever the environment is and if the environment is the soviet state you know they'll become a great entrepreneur in that environment by working with you know by doing some ugly things and i think that's what we're seeing here is especially in social media, you know, some of the big social media companies are doing fabulously by cozying up to some real ugliness and by, and by participating in some real ugliness. So yeah, 
And it might surprise uh, people who agree with what you just said to hear me say that uh, I think this is actually an argument for being uh, a fanatical free market ideologue, because um, uh, ultimately, if you want to correct some of those cronyism problems, you need an allegiance to something like strict property rights, whereas if your allegiance is just mm -hmm. vaguely to business or, right. you know, industry right. Uh, that's not, that's not going to uh, ensure that you stay on the right side of the tricky philosophical issues. Uh, if uh, I, I guess one way I think of it is, uh, you know, we both like Wall Street Journal to some extent, but I wouldn't be surprised if the average Wall Street Journal reader who thinks of himself as an ardent capitalist uh, is, you know, just sort of looking quarter by quarter at where the stock market is going. And you could probably sell most of those readers on socialism if you convinced him that abolishing socialism overnight would cause his stocks to dip for the next, you know, the next couple of quarters. Uh, so the 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 allegiance to uh, property rights is is pretty thin uh, if people are just focused on uh, business and uh, and profit making in the uh, m most uh, physical and non-philosophical sense. Uh, I guess in a way I'm, I'm wishing everyone were more philosophical. Uh, this is at least an And argument. Jefferson wished that too. <laughs> and and uh, I, I think this is actually, or uh, ends up being a roundabout argument for some version of uh, hardcore anarcho-capitalism in that uh, and, uh, saying this is sort of frowned on and looked upon as anti-intellectual by many people, but there is a lot to be said for brevity. Uh, and if your argument is, never use another person's body or property against their will, uh, you're a heck of a lot closer to getting rid of a lot of the status problems we've been talking about than if you accept the vague, mushy idea uh, that we just have a broad allegiance to some form of liberal market capitalism and you can add on other yeah. philosophical doodads and footnotes as you please. If you do that, you, maybe uh, a couple of years later, you've turned into Tyler Cowen or someone like that, uh, or the Niskanen Center, or some other place that sounds a little libertarian at times, but also ends up accepting a big part of the welfare state or the regulatory state. And then, you know, five years later, you're probably just back in the back in the swamp uh, of uh, an overweening uh, big government with who knows how many regulations, in part because the average person is not going to be able to keep track of what's going on in politics or what the government is up to if it gets too complicated. So I think we have a utilitarian duty to keep things very simple. Um, and that's why property rights uh, should be the decisive thing. And which I, th I think what you think about demographics in Mexico or something. Yeah. And I think, I think property rights, I, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely spot on keeping to core principles of do no harm. Um, you know, don't do anything. Don't, don't harm anyone else or their property. I think that also deals with a lot of the problems that conservatives or whoever it is that's concerned about open borders, I think it deals with that. And I might be repeating myself from, from our previous conversation too, but you know, a lot of the, the closed borders folk have been pointing to you know what happened in Europe and how Europe has been overrun by by all these Middle Eastern immigrants and you know the police aren't doing anything and blah 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 and yeah there are some real problems there I mean if you talk to people who live in Sweden or parts of Sweden there are actually real problems you can't pretend that that's not you know that 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 kind of immigration didn't cause real problems but what often gets left out of that discussion is that these weren't 
these were not, this wasn't, a, this wasn't caused by open borders. This was caused by people brought in and subsidized. And in a lot of cases, subsidized to do nothing, subsidized in a situation where they couldn't work. They weren't, they were actually prohibited from working and yet given government, government money, that's, that's a little bit more than just open borders. If, if they were, if we were talking about an actual system that respected property rights and where, yeah, there's free, free travel across borders, but nobody's going to pay you to live in a refugee center or, um, and whatever, you know, policing, whatever security we have, they're not going to ignore it when you go around attacking people. I, I really do believe that actual property rights enforcement would have solved those those problems. I'm not denying that they were problems because they really were, but I think a real property rights regime would solve that. And uh, and, and that's another reason why I think it's worth asking people, uh, whether they're right wing or left wing, uh, what they uh, really want in the long run. I mean, uh, so mm-hmm. in the, you know in the case of conservatives, uh, sometimes they'll say, uh, "Oh, I you know I, I'd be more comfortable with uh, open borders if we got rid of the welfare state." So it, is that really the outcome they want? In which case, maybe they could spend a little more time focusing on shrinking the welfare state. Um, yeah. Or are they just saying that so they can continue for the rest of their lives uh, to bash immigration? Uh, and if the latter is the case, I wish they would just fess up and tell me what it is they really uh, right. don't like about right. migration. And some of them will, of course. Uh, and they're yeah. creepy, but at least they're arguing. Well, honestly. and and I and I I have friends who who make that argument too, and I think they're you know I, I have I'm thinking of one friend in particular who thinks that people of different ethnicities should live with those ethnicities, that there should be separate societies. And you know what? I'm fine if somebody wants to, you know, if this person and, and their buddies wants to go and, and start a society where it's, where only white people or only black people or only Latino, whatever it is, are allowed to live in this community, fine, as long as it's all, as long as it's all voluntary and based on private property, you know, respecting the private property of the people involved. That's fine, and maybe that would take care of the. Maybe maybe some people really just want to be isolated from people who are different from them. I don't have a problem with that. It's just when you try to impose a one size fits all solution on everybody, it's untenable. And once again, I think uh, econ is actually very revealing in that area because uh, when you when people talk, uh, you know, they might talk big about how they want their own ethnic homelands or whatever. But when you look at how much they're willing to spend to actually create them or move right. to them. It's very small. So, for instance, yeah. uh, people who wanted a, a white homeland in, I think it was Idaho, uh, had a big opportunity about three or four years ago because somebody was trying to start one there. And yeah. they ended up with an empty town of like eight houses or something and nobody was moving there. I mean, wow. if it were that important to people, they'd perhaps migrate. Uh, if right. they don't, then uh, not only does it mean uh, their commitment to this may not be uh, the most important thing in their lives, uh, but they might be just one more case of statists uh, not being willing to put their money where their mouths are. Right. Um, so right. Pe- people aren't as willing to pay for uh, wars when it's out of their own individual pocket. They're also mm-hmm. not as willing to pay for ethnic homelands when it's out of their own pocket. So the closer you get to a market, the more you reveal that some people are just talking big uh, without actually uh, planning to back it up. And uh, that's not just a rights issue that, uh, to me, I'm a utilitarian as well as a libertarian. Uh, that means, you know, if you let the talkers dominate policy without paying for what they want, uh, you're probably getting a disutile outcome. 
uh, you're not really seeing people's preferences fulfilled. You're just seeing the big talkers well, dominate. That's, that's the whole, that's the very nature of politics though, yeah. is that we vote on things and then, you know, we, we vote to get people to sit in a room and make decisions about our lives. People who, who pay nothing for the costs that those decisions impose. And so it's really, I mean, the whole nature of politics is to divorce decision-making from the costs of those decisions. And, and Thomas Sowell has a great quote about that, which I can't conjure up at the moment, but something about, you know, the worst the worst possible way to make decisions is to put them in the hands of the people who don't pay, pay anything for those decisions going badly. And, you know, we've seen some grotesque examples of that this past year with Cuomo, you know, forcing the people into nursing homes and, you know, and that happening across the country. That's politics. That's the, that's the nature of politics. And it's completely antithetical to making good decisions and to life itself, I would say, in this case. And one reason to like econ is that uh, that seems like the clearest way for libertarians to play the role of the skeptic and the debunker of all the stuff that other political factions are saying. So, uh, you, you know, you can show that we're not uh, properly capturing uh, people's happiness and suffering uh, unless we pay attention to economic trade-offs. It's uh, not as clear-cut a win if you try to make an argument that's based solely on, say, the Constitution or, you know, some sort of Hegelian dialectic or uh, mm -hmm. ethnic destinies or something like that. Those things are all much, much vaguer uh, and more uh, manipulable by demagogues. Uh, but the point about politics and not capturing economic trade-offs as easily as individual choice does, that or seems pretty all. powerful. I think we should stick with that, basically. I, I guess I'm, I'm still kind of a post-communist 90s guy in that sense. And, and oh, and, and which reminds me that it is disturbing to see the extent to which uh, a lot of the young people on both left and right uh, are, the one thing they're agreed on is that everything got too free market in, in the 90s and they hate that. Uh, the, there's a lot of libertarian bashing amongst the young conservatives uh, in, in the past few years. Uh, by numbers, I think they're still small, but unfortunately they're some of the most vocal and sometimes the most intelligent ones. But uh, I mean, like even, I, I, I don't know, I've been to a, a oh, actually, well, a, a meeting or two of our old pals, the Novak fellows, uh, the group right. through which we met. And some of the youngest, uh, writers in that program now, I get the impression are like very proudly anti-bourgeois and anti-commercial. And, you know, I think they feel more kinship to kind of uh, almost medieval or aristocratic thinking uh, than, than they do or, or uh, bohemian uh, rural uh, sort of sort of uh, rural agrarian types uh, than they do to bourgeois capitalism. Uh, they much like a lot of people on the young people on the left feel like they've been shafted by global capitalism over the last couple mm. of decades. Which is understandable if you don't understand what the word capitalism means. Yeah. Um, right. So, I mean, if you're just, if you're, if you're looking primarily at a couple of big weird downturns instead of eternal, uh, potentially eternal. Well, I do. Uh, property I, principles. I, I really think you, you made an important point earlier when you were talking about this, there possibly being a moment akin to the end of the Cold War, I really do feel like we're there. I feel like we, and I don't know if it's, if we've got three months or six months or two years or what, but I feel like we've got a chance right now. People have been so screwed over. They've been so, there's been such a destabilization 
that in, in everything, in people's thinking, in their lives, on so many dimensions, that it's an opportunity for us to get in and make some change and to to push things. It's like the, the people running this whole pandemic nonsense have pushed things so far that it's not going to take that much more to just tip it over. And I, I do hope think so. We, yeah, I hope so. I'm, I'm not convinced I'm right, but... My fear is that the people who've done the most, uh, or I should say, the people who've done the prep work that will most easily translate into a cultural victory at this moment uh, are, for instance, the people who say, oh, now we need a climate lockdown, you know? Oh, of course. Or, oh, yeah, or, absolutely. Yeah. Or something like that. Or, or, or uh, uh, I mean, I actually, I, I know uh, one or two right wingers who actually kind of like the uptick in surveillance stuff, uh, as Mike Peter Thiel, for example, uh, because now they're thinking like, oh, this could be used to track migrants even, you know, even after COVID goes away. And that's just um, it. I mean, people have to, on the right or the left, I think you're, you're so right about getting down to fundamental philosophical principles, because if you really do respect individual rights, and I'm not saying, you know, most people on the right do or don't, but you know, if you have some guiding principle, it's got to apply to you and to the people you don't happen to like, you know, you can't say, oh, you know, I'm worried about, I don't want the government watching me, but, you know, go right ahead and surveil all those illegals coming up. I think when things get this crazy, I, I like to think, I hope that it forces people to really look at what their principles are and try to apply them across the board. One argument for constant tracking and surveillance that I think we'll probably see tried repeatedly in the next couple of years that I think will fail, it will just seem too petty, is uh, every time something bad happens or, or something arguably bad, I should say, like the January 6th uh, Capitol Hill siege, right. they'll say, oh, they're going to say, oh, we have to track everyone who had contact with these people because they could be plotting something. Uh, that I think I'm sure that's already happening to some extent. Those people's oh, yeah. uh, you know contacts are probably being uh, checked up on. They're getting FBI visits if they expressed sympathy with the the uh, the cause of the uh, Capitol Hill uh, rioters. Um, and of course, if that works at all, they'll use it uh, for you know, crisis and upheaval after crisis and upheaval, and uh, and just say tracking is tracking and surveillance is your answer to everything. I mean, you can certainly see how Bill Gates thinks the answer to virtually everything is more tracking and surveillance. Yes. Uh, if you know, if you, if uh, the only tool you have is a hammer, you tend to see every problem as a nail. Yeah. And if you're a tech mogul, even though we love some of them, mm -hmm. uh, you're probably at this juncture in history going to think that uh, more surveillance and electronic monitoring is a pretty good solution to everything. Or even if it's not, hey, give it a try and we'll make another billion dollars at least. We shall see. Oh, by the way, I just saw uh, an article today about how, uh, you know, those kind of scary looking DARPA robot dogs? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, they're they're using those in hospitals now with uh, a video screen on the front that shows your doctor so that your doctor doesn't have to get too close <gasps> to you and risk transferring germs. Oh, my like, God. If that's not something out of a Black Mirror episode, I don't yeah. know. What it is. And, of course, I, and I'm not even saying that that's necessarily a bad way to do it. Maybe that's the right solution. But it is weird how some of these things end up looking dystopian, whether they're good or bad. Yeah. Well, um, and it also makes quickly. me think. Also makes me think as a Doctor Who fan that uh, at some point, K-9 and a Dalek yes. must have had sex. I don't know when that happened. <laughs> they seem like enemies, but maybe it's beautiful that they were able to. Yeah. 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 They overcame that divide.
Yeah. And perhaps we all can. <laughs> um, any parting thoughts? Any um, how do we how do we get from here to there? Um, you're I think you're very focused on you know you you're getting the message out. You're you still God bless you have faith in reaching the people who are unreachable, and with with thoughts about economics and and being rational and and philosophy and all this stuff. Anything else? Anything other than other than just talking? Anything we can do? Oh uh, well. Uh, I mean, I suppose you mentioned the uh, restaurant in your area that's been uh, defying the lockdowns. Uh, I think throughout the COVID crisis, it's been so ambiguous what was legal and what wasn't. I even I made a conscientious effort here in New York City to like check the government website to see what I was supposed to do or not do. And I couldn't tell. I just so eventually I just just gave up. Um, And I think I'll actually there's a side note, but in New York City, I'm sure there are a lot of people who feel the same way about marijuana marijuana laws right now. Like I've just lost the 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 U.S. is so checkerboarded on the laws about that. By the way, I don't don't smoke pot. But if hypothetically uh, I were using it on a regular basis, I really wouldn't know at this point which states I can do what, where, because who can keep track? Uh, It was sort of simpler when it was just illegal everywhere. Um, But anyway, in a similar fashion, I'm sure there are a lot of people walking around unsure whether they're complying with the law or not. And in part because Biden is more low key for all of his horrible statist flaws, because he's sort of a calmer, more easily ignored guy. I feel like there there might be a shift in mood toward just sort of shrugging about the whole thing, not in a, an apocalyptic atlas shrug sense, but a sort of an apathetic and different way. Like, eh, maybe it's time we got back to normal, you know, quietly, humbly. Uh, yeah nudging in that direction might be the easiest thing to do and save the big apocalyptic ideological battles for later. Um, and, uh, you know, so maybe just quietly easing back to relatively normal. I think it's happening. I think in a lot of places it's happening. Yeah. So start having, start having picnics, I guess might be, might be the thing. And then little by little, we libertarian ideologues should try to remind people how annoying it was to be under house arrest and how you you wouldn't ever want to have to endure that for an even more petty reason, would you? You know, just kind of remind them of that. Like it should at yeah. least be, regardless of where one stood on COVID lockdowns, it should at least be something that like threatens the planet or, you know, uh, could kill you on the spot before. before but that's you casually... always the claim, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah. the claim with global warming. And <clears throat> my hope is that a lot more people will be less willing to accept those claims at face value going forward now that they yeah. see what, what people are willing to do with them. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, um, thanks for having me. I'm going to have to have you back again soon. Um, oh, I'd be delighted. And, um, and onward and upward. <laughs>